Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Horror Weekly, called What is Horror Weekly? We've done quite a few episodes on this podcast now, and there's been some feedback from the audience about what the show is and what it's trying to do. And I thought we'd talk about that a little bit today. Plus, we're going to do two of the best horror we saw this week, one a movie, one a show. The show is from the mid-80s. It's, in my opinion, one of the best single hours of horror television broadcast during the entire 80s, and it was directed by William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist. We're also going to talk about a lesser-known early 80s slasher, a slasher with an unusual amount of suspense and a few really cool tricks up its sleeve. So join us as we talk a little bit behind the scenes and then geek out on some great 80s horror. Okay, so what is Horror Weekly? A little history of how the show got to this point. Horror Weekly actually started as a Facebook page and a podcast called Halloween Weekly. That podcast is still going, highly recommended. Due to some mistakes I made, Horror Weekly had to branch off and take another name. The Horror Weekly name was never one of my favorites. It's a little generic to me, but... Um, the Facebook page had a significant following when we made the change and Facebook pages don't like when you make radical name changes. Like if it goes from something called Horror Weekly to something called The Horror Hive or whatever, then a Facebook page gets damaged. It has a lot less reach. So changing the name radically wasn't really in the cards. So hence it became Horror Weekly. While this podcast and the Facebook page and group, etc. were still pretty young, I started to work in marketing for Fangoria Magazine, which, as you can imagine, for a lifelong, lifelong horror fan, was a dream come true. And there were a lot of great and talented true horror lovers as you would imagine, at Fango. But seeing it from the marketing side was a little disillusioning. And this isn't just a Fango thing. You, the same would be for Rue Morgue or Shudder or almost any horror entity I can name, really. And here's the reason why. When you're... Forget the product for a second. Forget the actual magazine or forget the actual Shudder streaming channel. When they're marketing, they are on social media. And when they're on social media, what they tend to do is talk at their audiences. They're not really having a dialogue with you, the horror fans, or me, a lifelong horror fan. On top of fighting the evil fight, they're, you know, which is with good intentions, obviously, they're trying to sell shit, right? So I'll give you a little thought experiment to explain my thinking on this. If Fangoria was uh, ended today, if everything 
operationally at Fango shut down. It never made another magazine, never made another social media post. And you went back and looked at the magazines and their digital footprint, so to speak. What you would have is a record of what Fangoria thought about horror, the choices they made, the movies they put on the cover, the things that they emphasized in terms of trends in horror. If you go to the Fangoria Facebook page, which is about the same size as the Horror Weekly Facebook page now, and you look through the comments, that magazine is not talking (laughs) to the people commenting, right? It's giving out posts saying this horror movie came out on this day or we love this horror movie and an anniversary came up so we want to talk about it or this director we love is coming out with something new and we really want to highlight it. And then some people talk. Uh, under the comment section, and that's it. And honestly, the same thing would happen if Shutter ended today, etc. The thing that you won't have archived in that really is what horror fans thought and what horror fans loved and what horror fans believed. After being behind the scenes of it, I realized that the interest is telling you what they think you they want you want to hear to get you to buy and not have a real conversation. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that horror fans in mass are just basically really underrepresented um, on social media or kind of anywhere, really, except in one place, which is podcasting, where there are a million horror podcasts. But anyone who does a horror podcast can tell you it's painfully hard to grow any kind of sizable audience at all. So it's just a whole bunch of really hardworking creators in silos talking to very, very small groups of people. But I was interested in a bigger conversation, and I wanted there to be a place where a bigger conversation about horror could be had. Hence, Horror Weekly. So if Horror Weekly shut down today, devil forbid... (laughs) And there was another, there was never another episode and never another post. If you went back through the old posts on the pages, there would be an enormous record of what horror fans have been talking about over the last six, seven years. We ask a lot of questions on the page, like what was the horror movie that made you a horror fan in the first place? We've asked that question to the community quite a few times over the years, and we've got like 20,000 answers to it. And what's interesting is it's changing over time. So when we asked that question six years ago, we got tons of The Exorcist or Nightmare on Elm Street or Trilogy of Terror. But now we're getting answers that are a little bit more modern. Like Josh Probst commented on this question recently When I was probably seven, eight years old, I stayed over in an aunt's house who had satellite with all the TV channels. This was the early to mid 2000s when it was a big deal. And I stumbled upon Freddy vs. Jason on HBO. The hard rock film score, the dumb violence, I was smitten. It was a slow burn into my teenage years and early 20s, but it all grew from there and spiraled into the love for horror I have today. And Josh wasn't alone. Capria Fish commented, It's kind of sad for me, but it was Freddy vs. Jason. I was still very young when I first saw it, but this was the first horror movie that didn't scare me. 
in a sense, it flipped that switch of thinking, oh, horror movies can be kind of funny and entertaining too. And since that movie makes Jason a more sympathetic character, he became my favorite slasher. B. Taylor said, as far as movies, Blair Witch Project and The Ring. I saw both when I was around 12 and began my love affair with atmospheric horror. Before that, I had all the scary stories to tell in the dark books. My favorite part was just staring at the illustrations after I read the stories and creeping myself out. Amazing. There were people who said Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2003 was the movie that got them into horror. And who knows if this page is around 10 years from now and asking the same questions, we'll be getting people who are saying Hereditary or Evil Dead 2013 or what have you. So you get the point. Horror Weekly is meant to be a large, ever-running, unstoppable conversation about all things horror in a total free speech sense. It's built around a Facebook page, which has about half a million followers, an Instagram page, which is much smaller, a Facebook group, which is really fun, and then this podcast, and who knows what else will come. And we're not just talking about movies and TV shows here. We're talking about anything horror. One of my favorite things to happen on the Horror Weekly Facebook page in the last couple months is a post we recently did that told a little short story. It's a guy named Jack Rogers, and he he tweeted a picture of a bus stop in South London, and on top of the bus stop, on top of the roof, was a VHS copy of Hellraiser. And he said, over the last eight years of living in South London, there's been at least one copy of Hellraiser on VHS on top of this bus stop on East Street. The most I've ever seen up there is three. No idea how they get there. No idea who regulates it. So this little gorgeous piece of mystery um, blew up on the page. There's more than 4,000 comments. People were Google earthing the bus stop to show pictures of the bus stop over the years with multiple copies of Hellraiser sprinkled on it. There are people who lived near the bus stop who traveled over to it and put pictures and put comments on there. There were people who were fleshing out the story more. There was a, a gentleman named Darren Wilkin who commented, it's been there at least 15 years. I used to see it when I worked at Westminster, and that was 2007 through 2013. There were people who shared pictures of other bus stops with copies of Hellraiser on them. Who knew this was thing? Jan Yurick said, that's funny. When I first came to London in 2013 and started my first job, I noticed on my way to work a VHS tape of Hellraiser on top of my bus stop at Newington Green. There were a whole bunch of theories about who was doing it and why. And I think some answers were found, although there were so many comments I couldn't even keep up a lost track. And the point is, Fangoria or Shudder are not going to talk to you about these things. They're going to post to you an interview they've done with Doug Bradley, which is amazing. I'll read anything Doug Bradley says. But again, that's all creator and publisher centric. And I think there needs to be a place for horror fans. And like, what if this is just some random horror fan who loves Hellraiser, who's decided to put a little evil joy into the world by always putting a copy of Hellraiser or a group of them? Who knows? It could be a cult. 
I might go down to a bus stop near me and start throwing VH or DVD copies of Maximum Overdrive on top of them. What the hell? We recently did a post saying, give us a horror movie that you'll always defend. And it was amazing to see so much love for like The Rage, Carrie 2, which I think is a criminally underrated sequel. Or The Final Girls from 2015, which we've talked about before on this podcast, which is a mildly flawed but visually spectacular and really fun um, horror parody. And there was this amazing comment under the post from Landel Goolsby, who said, Is the middle Final Girls referring to the picture in the post? The weekend this came out on DVD, I took it home. I was at a crossroads and was contemplating closing my video store. I watched the final girls and fell in love with movies all over again. We moved my video store and added a cafe and a lot had to do with that Friday night. When I watched that movie, it just sparked in me a fight to keep going. And I'm so glad I did. I can't think of anything that feels more like the horror weekly mission to me than a post where a whole bunch of people are passionately defending the horror movies they love that they don't think get enough respect and having people trading anecdotes and his response, his comment got tons of supportive responses asking about his video store and the history of it. And there was people who knew him and didn't know he owned a video store. It was an amazing conversation, but nothing feels more horror weekly than that to me. Now, a couple other quick things, and we'll get to talking about the horror TV show and movie I promised earlier. One is, and I guess I should apologize for this, anyone who follows the Horror Weekly Facebook page probably knows that the page does a lot of debating in the comments. Maybe some would even call it arguing. Um, I love a good debate. I love to have my mind changed. I love seeing other people have their minds changed or see things in a different light or have the ability to express something so passionately and intelligently that they're changing other people's minds. Now, I am certain this is not what Facebook wants a page doing. Page probably shouldn't be arguing. We lose a lot of followers that way. And who cares? That's what it's for is the conversation is not just everything you love or shitting on the movies you don't like or whatever. It's more about digging into the whys. Why do we love the horror genre? Why do we love a particular movie or director or actor or author? Why do we all agree the Poltergeist remake sucks? Why do traumatic looking things on screen give us comfort during hard times in our life sometimes? And why is horror just so much damn fun? It really is the most entertaining genre. That's why there aren't like big Western conventions that I know of or rom-com conventions. You can't get together in big groups in mass and like celebrate those things the way you can at like a horror con. Sure, there's comic cons or whatever, but comic isn't a genre i mean it's i guess it's a genre but like it cuts across all things there's like super like comic movies and then very dark comic movies but horror even though it has breadth it's all a more specific thing 
There's something about a genre that can send a chill down your spine and make you be afraid for a moment to be alone at night that is unmatched in entertainment. And there are as many different reasons why as there are horror fans in the world. That's why I wish they were all following the Horror Weekly page, not for the size, but because it would lead to richer, more interesting, more lasting answers and conversations, which is what we're trying to do. And the last thing, if anybody made it this far in this episode and is still listening at this point, and this might make some people angry, I'm not going to be able to articulate this as well as I probably should, but there's been a turn in my lifetime against the idea of reviewing, by which I mean I can tell the sentiment on the page, in the comments, and in the group, etc., um, is a lot more who cares what Rotten Tomatoes says, who cares what a mainstream movie critic says about a horror movie, make up your own mind, go see it, fuck those people and their opinions, um, it's your own experience that counts. All of that is totally true. But the weird thing is that principle also applies to reading or watching reviews themselves. You get to make up your own mind there too. And some people who approach that as a craft, and it is a craft, like Roger Ebert was practicing a craft. He was working at hard as at movie reviewing as John Carpenter works at making movies or maybe that's a bad example. It's just playing video games now. But you get the point. Opinions matter. You're in control of what you think of those opinions. But there are reviewers. There's one that I've talked about on this podcast probably a few times at this point. He goes by the name Outlaw Vern. He writes really insightful really incredible stuff about horror and action and all types of movies. And I've learned a lot and discovered a lot from what he's had to say, but I've discovered most from running the Facebook page and reading the comments and getting into conversations with you all. I think in the social media age, we've become too hostile the idea of expertise and the idea of reviews in general. But here's the thing. Just consuming a review doesn't determine anything. Outlaw Vern loved Halloween Kills. I hate that movie. Just because someone you respect or think is smart or has great taste likes something doesn't mean you have to like it too. And just because they're misaligned with you once in a while doesn't mean you have to hate them. It's the thought and the reasons and the imagination behind it all that counts. And that's what Horror Weekly is there for you to do, to give your opinions in the comments or send them so that I can say them on this podcast so we can all love horror a little more and a little better. So I don't know if that made things clearer or murkier about what this whole enterprise is. But I thought I'd give it at least one shot of explaining it in case anyone was interested. I'm very much looking forward to your feedback. Okay, now let's talk about some horror. The best horror I saw this week is a twofer because I owed you one for last week. 
The first one we're going to talk about is from the 1980s reboot of The Twilight Zone, a show that I think is really underappreciated. The intro music by The Grateful Dead, the ghostly appearance of Rod Serling in the credits, and the amazing list of talents that contributed to this short-run series just blows my mind. People who contributed or or um, acted in the series include the amazing writer Harlan Ellison, George R.R. R. Martin, Wes Craven directed episodes, William Friedkin, who we're about to talk about, directed episodes. The cast had Bruce Willis, Helen Mirren, Morgan Freeman, Martin Landau, Francis McDormand, Fred Savage. I think Wes Craven did two of my favorite episodes in the series. No surprise. One called Dealer's Choice with a bunch of people playing poker with the devil, which was amazing. And one called Shadow Man, which is still scary to this day. But the masterpiece of this series was the fourth episode of the first season. It's actually the last segment of the episode called Nightcrawlers adapted from a short story with the same name by Robert R. McCammon, an incredible horror novelist who did masterpieces like Swan Song and Usher's Passing, among others. The sad thing about this episode is that it was so dark and so uncompromising that it really damaged the Twilight Zone series reboot as a whole. The audience share dropped massively after this episode of people tuning in the week afterwards. I imagine because they were so rattled by what they saw, which is the stupidest thing. But you could tell that there was a huge chunk of the audience who wanted Twilight Zone to be family friendly or like just all morality tales. I mean, the old Twilight Zone, which is one of my favorite TV series of all time, had really dark, uncompromising stuff in it. Rod Serling might have been the greatest writer in television history. But there, after time goes by, after some nostalgia sets in, people start to look back on it and think it's some of it is pretty tame. And I think they were expecting tame out of the 80s reboot. And then along comes William Friedkin, with this scary as hell, unrelenting nightmare of an episode, and poor Twilight Zone never recovered. The episode is about a war veteran who stumbles into a remote cafe in the middle of a very stormy night, with only some staff and a few guests inside, and one police officer. And he has this strange ability to manifest really small things when he wants to, like he can make a beer appear in someone's hand or he can make a T-bone steak appear on the grill when it wasn't there, but it doesn't last. It only materializes for a few seconds and then goes away. But when he goes to sleep, the things that he materializes get a lot more dangerous, a lot less in his control and a lot more real. We hear when the episode opens that there's been a massacre at a hotel nearby, that it looked like a quote-unquote war zone, and the people in the diner start to get very suspicious that this erratic war veteran might have been part 
of the massacre and they start to get afraid. The police officer starts to get really interested and drill down on this guy and ask him questions. And he starts to spill really horrific details about his past in the war and uh, his all his um, friends back in the war and the battle, they all died except for him. And we really start to get the sense that when he falls asleep, his quote-unquote friends are angry that he survived and they didn't, and they're coming for him and anyone else who gets in the way. This episode is incredible. It has amazing music scored by the Grateful Dead and, believe it or not, Huey Lewis on harmonica um, and a, a member of the punk group X is actually in the episode playing a waitress. It was one of the most expensive uh, episodes of the entire Twilight Zone series. They blew a lot of shit up, and none of it was miniatures. When they blew up buildings or they blew up cars, they were really blowing them up. The cinematographer Bradford May said uh, the director, William Friedkin, was the most challenging director he had ever worked with because he demanded utmost intensity from every single shot. But Nightcrawlers is a ravishingly beautiful and haunting piece of television. It's like The Mist crossed with First Blood, one of my favorite movies of all time, with a dash of the opening scene of the Stand miniseries, the good one, not the new one, and maybe a little bit of Firestarter. It's an incredible recipe. I heard Joe Dante briefly fight for this episode a long time ago on his podcast, Trailers from Hell, where he said this was a really underseen masterpiece. And if the director of The Howling Gremlins is saying something is a masterpiece, I agree. If you haven't seen it, go check out Nightcrawlers. Next, we have the 1981 slasher Night School, starring Rachel Ward. This is a really interesting horror movie. It reminds me of 10 to Midnight a little bit because it has a, a police procedural element of a kind. It's definitely a slasher, though. And it's the last film of Hollywood veteran Kenneth Hughes, who started directing way back in 1952. This guy did Of Human Bondage with Kim Novak, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, of all things. And like I said, this is his last film. So it feels a little more polished, a little prestige in the places that it doesn't feel like an early 80s slasher. And it really plays with its audience. There's an incredible sequence in the middle of this movie where you know some of the innocent characters are going to stumble upon a body or pieces of a body. And the movie draws it out what feels like forever, teasing us of when and how that gruesome discovery is going to be made. And it's just so good. The opening kill is unforgettable. It's a teacher on a carousel outside of school, and the killer is going to spin this teacher around faster and faster on this carousel and hold up a machete <laughs> and let the carousel feed this poor woman into the machete at some point. It's shot so skillfully. 
and the terror is real. I love when a movie opens with an unforgettable kill, the way like Wolfen does. And Night School is not that good, but it's pretty damn good. Now, I apologize. I'm going to have to spoil this one to talk about what really made it truly special. So I'm spoiling it from here on out. This movie pulls off something so cool. I didn't even really notice it the first time I watched it. I had to, when I rewatched the second time, like my jaw dropped. I and mean, how often does a movie do that to you? Where it's on the second pass that you're more surprised. And it wasn't the plot, obviously, because I'd seen it before. I knew the whole plot. But once I realized kind of what the movie was doing, I, I'm mind blown. So what I'm talking about here is that Rachel Ward, who was amazing and stars in like she starred in that very haunting uh, HBO, like regular run movie Fortress, which I know traumatized a lot of people of the time, including me. It's like animal masks and like strangers ask, but with a whole bunch of kids in danger, pretty awful stuff. But she is incredible in this movie. And there's a very long set of sequences where we're following her terrified walking through the night city from night school, walking through the streets at night, going faster and faster, being followed by someone clearly and just in terror, like handshaking so bad she can't get her uh, apartment door open with her key. Um, really, really creepy vibe as she's getting stalked. And then there's other scenes where we get the obligatory slasher shower scene where Rachel Ward is in the shower and we know something's going bad is coming. And uh, we're sure that it's uh, a killer or even if it's not the killer, it's a fake out killer, like a copycat or a red herring killer or whatever. Um, and there is a payoff to that um, moment, but it's a pretty good jump scare. And the amazing thing that I'm talking about here is when we get to the end of the movie, Rachel Ward, Eleanor is her character's name in the movie, is the killer. She's the slasher. And I don't think I've ever seen a slasher where they took the villain and made the villain seem like a terrified possible final girl for as long as this movie did. And sure, you might be able to guess this going into an advance. I, I'm sure the audiences of the time were less able to, but after having seen tons of slashers at this point, even I started, I mean, there were only so many major characters, right? And you got to suspect all of them a la Scream style. So I'm not talking about here necessarily about how the plot tricks you. I'm talking about how brave the movie was to devote so much time to treating the villain visually as a final girl. And she's very smart and very strong and very devious. And again, spoilers, she gets away with it. So I love that she's not caught at the end of this. She might be going into serial killer retirement. Probably not, because she seems completely crazy. Now, this isn't the goriest slasher ever. It's a lot like Hell Knight, another slasher I love. 
that felt a little on the classy side and a little less on the gore side. Although there are great kills in this movie and really good, like I said, body discoveries, dismemberments, etc. But if you're looking for a super gory one, this isn't it. But if you're looking for one that has a really spooky undertone and seems to have some kind of bad intentions as a movie about what it's trying to accomplish and say and and do to its audience, then it's time to attend night school. All right, that's it for us this week. Thank you to everyone who commented, made suggestions, gave feedback, and who follows us anywhere that supports us, that got us to this point, and hopefully a lot further. And until next Wednesday, have a great horror week.